0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I Know How You Feel, The Baptism and Temptation of Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January the 8th, 2012. In The Last Temptation of Christ, 1988, a film based upon the novel by Nikos Kazantakis, director Martin Scorsese portrays a very human Jesus. He confesses his sins, he fears insanity, he wonders if he's merely a man, and he anguishes over the people he didn't heal. In his last or ultimate temptation, during his execution, Jesus battles with hallucinations sent by Satan. He wonders what his life might have been like if he had chosen the path of an ordinary person. He imagines marrying Mary Magdalene, growing old and having kids. But then his disciples reproach him for abandoning his special mission. And through their reproach, he returns to consciousness to accomplish his final suffering, death, and resurrection. Many Christians were outraged by Scorsese's film and considered it blasphemous. Blockbuster Video even refused to carry it. What bothered many Christians was the suggestion that Jesus was fully and truly human, that he was a person who experienced trials and tribulations, faults and failures, just like we do. Torment, doubt, loneliness, questions fantasies, confusion, despair, erotic dreams, and, in his final hours, feeling abandoned by God. This impulse to airbrush the humanity of Jesus has a long history. The second-century Gnostics and Docetics, from the Greek word doceo, to seem or appear, they argued that Jesus only seemed human. Surely he couldn't have been polluted by our material existence. In so trying to protect Jesus from a genuine human nature, though, we do the exact opposite of what he himself does in his baptism in temptation. Instead of insulating himself from us, Jesus fully participates with us Similarly, a hundred years after the event, Jesus' baptism made some Christians nervous. In the non-canonical gospel of the Hebrews from about the year 80 to 150 AD, Jesus seems to get baptized to please his mother, not to repent for his sins like everyone else. We read, The mother of the Lord and his brothers said to him, John the Baptist baptizes for the the forgiveness of sins. Let us go and be baptized by him. But Jesus said to them, In what way have I sinned that I should go and be baptized by him? Unless perhaps what I have just said is a sin of ignorance. But the reading from Mark this week is insistent. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and then tempted or tried in the desert. We read in Mark chapter 1, At once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in baptism, and then the Spirit of God cast him into the desert, To be tempted and tried. With his baptism, Jesus inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. He took upon himself the faults and failures, the pains and problems of all the broken people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, He took his place beside us and among us. Not too long into his public ministry, the sanctimonious religious leaders derided Jesus as a friend of gluttons and sinners. They were surely right about that. His temptation by Satan emphasizes this point. The parallel passages in Matthew and Luke specify three temptations: turning stones to bread, throwing himself down from the temple, and accepting the glories of earthly kingdoms. Interpreters have variously categorized these three temptations. I like Henry Nowen's suggestion that they represent our perennial temptations to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. Interpreting the three temptations just so doesn't really matter, for we know these were not Jesus' only temptations. In Luke's version, at the end of the 40-day trial, Satan left Jesus, we read, only until an opportune time, Luke 4.13. In other words, he came back again and again the next three years. Like us, there was never a time in his life when Jesus didn't experience trial and temptations. His ultimate temptation, and the ultimate despair anyone can experience, was the sense of feeling forsaken by God in Gethsemane. Jesus was tempted not only in the desert, but throughout his entire earthly life. We read in Hebrews 4:15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The God who loves us empathizes with all the ambiguities, complexities, trials, and temptations of our lives. In our weaknesses, our feelings of being forsaken and forgotten, our temptations to despair, Jesus says, I know how you feel. Take comfort and confidence in God's grace and never give in to shame. self-hatred. Having been baptized and tempted, Jesus is the friend of sinners, not their enemy. One of the more remarkable characterizations of Jesus in the Gospels is that he was, quote, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We read that social and moral outcasts flocked around Jesus, much to the chagrin of the religiously righteous. They clearly felt safe with Jesus, accepted, embraced, and welcomed by him. Based upon this gospel text, the Presbyterian pastor J. Wilbur Chapman wrote the well-known hymn, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners, 1910. The second verse is my favorite. Jesus, what a strength and weakness, let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he my strength, my victory wins. As the friend of sinners who suffered trials and temptations, we read in Hebrews 2.18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Which is to say... Jesus is for us, not against us. In the fall of 2003, I spent two weeks in Oxford doing some writing. And one Sunday, I attended St. Aldate's Anglican Church. No one knows for certain who St. Aldate's was, but their first rector, a man named Reginald, started serving the church way back in the year 1226. As I walked through the church doors, the usher enthusiastically greeted me. We welcome all sinners, he said. Those were words I needed to hear. They capture the meaning of Jesus' baptism and temptation. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Mark 2, 15-17. Indeed, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, Luke 15-2. For books this week, I review a title by David S. Reynolds. It's called Mightier Than the Sword, Uncle Tom's Cabin, in the Battle for America, New York, W. W. Norton, 2011, 351 pages. Some apocryphal stories are too good not to repeat. Ten years after publishing Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, in 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe was the most famous woman in America when she visited President Lincoln in the White House in order to urge him to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. The towering Lincoln is said to have greeted the five-foot-tall author, is this the little woman who made the Great War? It doesn't matter that Lincoln probably didn't say this, because it's what every person thought, anyway. David Reynolds's book coincides with the 200th anniversary of Stowe's birth in 1811. It's a biography not only of the author, but especially of the most influential book ever written by an American. Reynolds shows how Stowe incorporated into Uncle Tom's cabin many political, cultural, social and religious themes of American life in her day in ways that cause her book to redefine American democracy on a more egalitarian basis. The book re- reflected the zeitgeist and also the radically reformed it. The superlatives pile up when you try to measure the influence of Uncle Tom's Cabin. One year after its publication, it had sold over 300,000 copies. It was the first American novel to sell more than a million copies. It sold a million copies in Britain alone in its first year, and has been translated into 70 languages. Stowe was very explicit, also, about the origins of her book. She insisted that God gave the book to her in visions. For Stowe, slavery was evil, and so were the political and economic institutions that supported it. She had especially harsh words for American churches— In her novel, Dread, published in 1856, four years after Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the characters laments, about half the churches defend slavery from the Bible in the most unblushing, disgusting manner. The other half acknowledge and lament it as evil, but they are cowed and timid and can do nothing. Stowe appealed to a higher law than the Constitution or the Fugitive Slave Act. Her message appealed to 8th century Hebrew prophets in the message of Jesus in the New Testament. David Reynolds traces the afterlife of the book's initial publication into thousands of plays performed by hundreds of companies all over the world. He rehearses the numerous film spin-offs. Sunday schools used it as a text. Marketers created tie-ins of every sort. In the South, of course, it provoked outrage. Owning a copy of the novel was criminalized, and the play was prohibited in many places. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote almost 30 books after Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it's impossible to imagine American history without her one singular achievement. David S. Reynolds mightier than the sword. For film this week, I review Martha Marcy May Marlene, from the year 2011. The deeply troubled young woman in this film has four names, not one which signals that the story is about the loss of personal identity. Martha, played by Elizabeth Olsen, is her given name. The charismatic leader of the cult she joined, a master of evil manipulation who was all sweetness, said, You look like a Marcy May, and so it was. Marlene is the name that all the women in the cult used, when they answered the phone. Thus, Martha, Marcy May, Marlene. Martha escapes this sick family cult in upstate New York by calling her sister Lucy and her husband Ted. They try to help Martha, but in fact they embody the crass materialism for which the cult was an antidote of meaning and relationships. Lucy and Ted live in the city, but they spend weekends in a cavernous lakeside cottage in rural Connecticut. Lucy complains that Martha is getting her house dirty and offers her kale and ginseng tea. Martha struggles to distinguish between horrible dreams and painful memories, the real and the unreal. The entire film switches back and forth between the Colts family and her real family with her sister, and we can't help but noticed parallels. Both are toxic, and the end of the film offers no closure. Martha Marcy May Marlene, 2011. And for poetry this week, we've published a poem called Resurrection by Mary Ann Bernard. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow, first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head. Her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain, and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep in fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain. Looked high and low, for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, That things don't follow, fast or fair, That life goes on, and times do change, And grass does grow, despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow. The smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, that children smile, and from the dark, cold grime a flower comes. It groans yet sings, and through its pain the peace begins. Mary Ann Bernard, Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, January the 8th, 2012, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.